This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, good morning, and welcome. This is 3RRR, this is Radio Marinara. I'm Anthony Boxshaw. I'm Bron Burton. Oh, I'm Rex Hunter. How are we all? Pretty well. Pretty good, looking at the weather outside. It's the extension. It's the summer extension. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, is that what we're calling it now? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think something. I, I call it climate change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 31, kind of... It's just ridiculous, I have isn't some it? very lonely... Coats and hats and scarves that are just looking at me going, we're ready. We're ready. We're, yeah, we're willing ready, to go. Been ready for a while now. That's right. I know. You know, I was just in Canberra last week and I was like 31 up there as well. Yeah. And they're going unseasonable. Mm. Go, hey, welcome to this. This is our future. <laughs> so sorry. And on that note, anyway. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. <laughs> Thank you, Tim, very much for Vital Bits. Thank you, Andrew Minga, very much for Soulful Bits. Very good, yes. Did enjoy oh, brilliant. this morning's yeah, program. Beautiful music. Hmm. Yeah, we're all in a bit of a mellow, awesome, relaxed. Let's go through the program. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do that. Do, do, you want to, do you want to mention our first guest? Yes, yeah, so our first guest is kind of, I, I think really, um, from, you know, uh, Dr. Bryce Stewart is becoming a bit of a kind of a regular, he's almost like our British correspondent now, isn't he? Yeah, and we should be up front to say that <laughs> we both went to uni with Bryce, so we've known him a long time. A long time. <laughs> but he's also, he's been on the program a couple of times. Um, but he's in, he's sitting in, in York, um, where he works at the University of York, he's sitting there waiting for us to call, Skype call in, <laughs> in about 10 minutes, and we're going to ca- catch up on the latest in kind of British science, a couple of interesting things. So Brexit, fisheries negotiations are hotting up, there's a whole lot of interesting stuff there. Um, do you know that beast storm they had in yes. the UK? Yes. Unbelievable marine impact. Like to hear about this. Extraordinary. And then Bryce wants to tell us about a thing called the Blue Planet Effect. Ah. Because mm. we're about to get Blue Planet here, aren't we? The new... Blue Planet 2. 2, yeah. Yes. So it had an impact, political impact in the UK. Really interesting. So wait and think about that. So anyway, that'll be up coming up in 10, 15 minutes. Excellent. And Rex, you got some... News to report. News to report. Um, yeah, lots, lots happening in the world of maritime archaeology and all things underwater-ish. Um, there was a recent dig at, at the Batavia grave site in, off the Brolis Islands and they uh, uncovered five more skeletons. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, wow. So um, I think in total there's like 115 people died on and they found groups or clumps of... Uh, Skeletons. Some um, they think these people actually died from natural causes because there was no <laughs> sword wounds or things like that. So um, huh. Dutch archaeologists have been carrying out excavation there, along with Jeremy Green and the guys from WA. We know. Great. So we'll hear more, we'll about, hear that. more about that. Yeah. So that, that's Ooh. quite interesting. Um, and one more quick thing. Yeah. Uh, Paul Allen, our uh, 
our, our friend Paul Allen, uh, his, his group recently found the, um, the battleship US uh, Juno sunk off the Solomon Islands in 1942 by a Japanese torpedo and uh, carrying the famous five Sullivan brothers. Now, if you grew up during the 1960s like me, you would have seen this, the Fighting Sullivans, the movie and all that. No, I, I honestly didn't, so I don't. <laughs> I didn't either, so we can but talk about that. But you're going to tell us about that. it there later. Because was... oh, okay, okay. I'm keen to hear about this one. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. They're doing an amazing job. The Fighting Sullivans. Hey, and then, Bron, we've got, got a whole slot in the middle of the show then. That's right. Um, and then um, to close the show out... We're going to be joined in studio by Alison Peake and Phil McAdam and they're coming in to talk about the Slow Fish Festival which is happening next weekend in Spotswood. So this is a festival really looking at the concept of slow fish and we're going to explore that with Alison who is the festival coordinator. Uh, and Phil is one of the guest speakers at the festival and Rex, this is hilarious, <laughs> in the green room you guys kind of <laughs> greeted each other. Oh, everyone knows each <laughs> you've other. You've known each other for... And I said, you look like you've known each other for... 30 years, like, and then you both said it's because we have known each other for 30 years. <laughs> so that's fantastic. Really looking forward to... He's my um, bay rec spotter. So. Yeah. <laughs> my well, personal rec spotter. Isn't that fantastic? Hey, and to be clear, this is not about slow-moving fish. I don't think we'll so. we have to find out. Yes. Hey, did so, you know... Oh, sorry, go. Oh, well, it, Phil brings a really interesting perspective um, to what the festival is all about. He's a third-generation fisherman and... Uh, I, that's what his presence is there to do at the festival next weekend is to talk about, you know, the, not just what it's like to be a commercial fisher but the culture and the heritage yeah. that comes with that. Well, they live and breathe it, if you know Phil and the group that surrounds him and uh, it's just amazing. You get, go and visit Phil in his shed and it's just all people talk about is all things maritime. It's mm. just amazing and uh, have the strongest tea in the world. <laughs> take your front teeth out. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, so everyone knows April Amnesty is on. So, did you know that? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So there's lots of great prizes to win for subscribing during April Amnesty. There's a bike, furniture, holiday in Tassie, dinners, meals around town, lots more. Um, you can, we, we will reference some of them. There's, so Scotchman's Hill Winery, Mixed Dozen of Premium Wines, Junction Arts Festival, um, Evolved Driver Training Events. I mean, there's loads and loads. And you can just listen throughout um, and, um, April and you'll hear more from all of the, the shows. So you've got to subscribe by midnight Monday, April 30th to go on the running for all these prizes. And if you check them all out, you can get a huge list on the website. Um, there's about six subscriber-only events throughout April Amnesty, um, including four different lives to air. So super fluid, fluidity, pockness. Fluidity. Fluidity. Oh, I no D. Wrong. I know. I always get that wrong. <laughs> I always read like a, it's got a D. <laughs> Breaking and entering, Einstein and Go-Go. There's all these really cool ones yeah. that are happening and you can basically get, so anyway, full details of all that stuff up on the website. April Amnesty. Go to rrr.org.au and you can sneak in under the amnesty. It's worth it. You'll feel better. If you want to do it quietly and avoid the chaos that is Radiothon. Yeah, this is the time of the year for you. Prizes are fantastic. I know. Thank you to our sponsors. Sa sourdough Kitchen. Voucher for Sourdough Kitchen or, or one of their six farmers market stores. Basically, you get to eat, um, you know, vegetarian eats and all kinds. Of, I mean, it's just amazing. I'm looking I'm at the, um, the mini pass to the Melbourne International Film Festival. Yeah. We can't win, can we? No. 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 <laughs> Conflict of <laughs> interest. Just that I check. <laughs> Um, but Helen from Mornington can. <gasps> Mum? Oh, actually, no, that's not going to work. Because she's, she's, uh, she's already a subscriber through Radiothon, so that's not going to work. This is, this is for, uh, well, I suppose you could subscribe twice in twice. a year. Yeah, yeah, of course you could. Can I do the weather? Yeah, well, I think we should. 30 degrees we're heading for today. Mostly sunny day. Megahertz are kicking off their training. Oh, really? You're today. down there You're down there coaching? Uh, I'm there as um, <laughs> nutritional guide, support. <laughs> Um, Nutritional? What are you bringing the beer? <laughs> well, I'm glad you say beer because a couple of years ago you would have said peptides. <laughs> and um, it, to me that's quite significant that we've moved on. We have moved on. <laughs> so, back to beer. <laughs> mostly sunny day. I actually hadn't planned on bringing beer but maybe maybe down the track a bit. I thought that was always in the esky. Is it peptides? <laughs> the esky? No, no oranges. <laughs> <laughs> 
sprinkled with peptides. Yeah. Mostly sunny day, light, a slight chance of a shower in the evening. I think that's probably optimistic. Winds 15 to 20 kilometres an hour, increasing to 35 kilometres an hour in the morning, then turning westerly, 15 to 25 kilometres per hour during the late afternoon and evening. 30. It's going to be warm. Tomorrow, Gosh. we're going to drop down to 23, but no rain is the message here oh, right through no. till really Wednesday. Um, 23 tomorrow, uh, morning clouds, sunny afternoon. Tuesday, 29 and cloudy. Wednesday, 23 and a shower or two. Very similar for Thursday and then Friday, sunny and 23. More of the same. More of the same. If you're um, doing school holiday stuff and it's a... Nice to be outside if you've got kids and they're on holidays. Can I mention something really quickly? Oh, I see, yeah, I reckon. Let's do that. Um, this is a comedy festival and if you tuned in last week, um, mm-hmm. you will remember that we had a couple of special guests who had, have... Um, festival shows on. One of them has um, wrapped up yesterday and I ended up taking uh, my daughter to see Attack of the Plastic Time Monsters. Oh, so wow. with uh, Sven and Sven, who were um, the... the, the uh, <laughs> Producers, writers, directors, <laughs> actors. Absolutely hilarious. Probably gaffer. Yeah. <laughs> so they're actually, they've wrapped up their um, comedy festival stint at La Mama, but they are going to be running a series of shows at um, Spiegel. And um, so look out for these guys, particularly if you've got younger kids, particularly the primary age. Um, it's a show all about plastic pollution in the oceans. And so these guys find a way of time travelling back oh, wow. and actually fixing the problems that have sort of led to this creation. So it's hilarious. Um, I reckon, yeah, even right, like the youngest child that I saw there would have maybe been two and they were entertained for the full hour. So there's a lot of slapstick kind of funny, um, yeah. So what's it called? Uh, Attack of the Plastic Time Monsters. Brilliant. And Sven. Sven and Sven. Sven If you want to listen to um, the interview that we had with them last week, have a look via On Demand because um, they were hilarious and pretty much as they were in studio is what you'll see on stage. Um, a couple of quick ones and then I know we've got um, Bryce lined up. Splash Test Dummies. So <laughs> that is continuing right through till the 15th of April. So from the makers of hit show Trash Test Dummies comes a new production of Oceanic Proportions. Splash <laughs> Test Dummies are here, ready to roll out their beach tails and spring into a brand new hour of circus-filled hilarity for the whole family. So that one's um, that one. So they're going cool to this going to be the Melbourne Marine Comedy Festival? This well, is where they're going to need it. Well, there's, a, there's the quite a few acts. There's one called yeah. Here's Looking at You Squid. So that one um, that one goes on until right till the end of the comedy festival. In fact, it kicks off tomorrow. So I might do some research into that and talk more about that one next weekend. It's a show for animal lovers and haters alike. It's all about animals but also love and regrets. Um, and the last one I'll mention just for today because today is her final, um, her final show. Uh, Jennifer Wong, How to Swim with Dolphins by Correspondence. <laughs> so this one looks really lovely as well. That's at Acme in Fed Square um, and that's on this evening. Oh, and just one last one. The- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't know, just go ahead. We've only got to Sorry, 10. Sorry, Bryce. <laughs> I wanted to mention this one because I went to see them after last week's show. It's um, Dead Men Tell No Jokes uh-huh. and it's a parody of the Pirates of Caribbean series. Oh, wow. And their final show is on this afternoon. It's um, on at the Butterfly Club. Absolutely sensational. I have not laughed that hard for a very long yeah, time. Wow. Family so- friendly? Very family yeah, friendly. Cool. Probably more at the older end. Yeah, yeah. I reckon late primary all the way through, you know, yeah. Um, teens. Uh, yeah, very f- huge fun. Um, very, very clever stuff. And the only thing I would say about that is it's probably worth checking online to see if there are any tickets left because a lot, oh, of, their, yeah, a lot of their shows had sold out. You're on Radio Marinari. It is about seven, six, 17 minutes past the hour of 9 o'clock and it's probably 17 minutes past the hour of midnight or something <laughs> in um, in York. But we welcome to the studio live from uh, via Sky the wonders of the internet. Dr. Bryce Stewart, good morning, evening, night, what it is over there. Uh, I think it, it's good morning for me as well. That's actually, yeah, you're right, about uh, 18 past midnight, yeah. Have we caught Sitting you on... here with a glass of wine. Have we, caught, have we caught you on the tail end of a big night out, Bryce? Oh, uh, well, you know, I don't like to talk. <laughs> <laughs> actually, no, a big night sat in front of the TV, I'm afraid. Of course, the you know we, I don't want to talk about it, but we're sitting here with a nice glass of wine as well. So, um, the um, welcome to to the studio and thanks for staying up so late in the UK to join us. And we've got so much to catch on about what's going on in UK, the marine UK environment. 
Mm. Let, let's start with the beast from the east. So in the last couple, in the last month or so, we've covered the beast from the east storm a couple of times on the show through catch-ups okay. and news and other things. And so we're aware of the actual event and the, right. what it did to the kind of weather. But what I think perhaps people aren't aware of is what happened afterwards on shore, on all of the beaches, particularly, as I understand, in Yorkshire. What, what actually happened? Yeah, so, I mean, it was it was both shocking but also incredible. Um, particularly in Yorkshire, but various other places down the east coast of the UK, um, up as far north as uh, north of Edinburgh. Uh, apparently even down in Spain there was some effects. This mass uh, wildlife wash-up was what they called it. So there were thousands, if probably millions, of um, uh, particularly invertebrates, so starfish, crabs, uh, urchins, but also a lot of fish, um, even the odd seal, seabird, etc., was washed up on the beach, basically at the tail end of this storm. Um, and it, it was, yeah, it was quite something else, to be honest. Some of the photos I saw of it, 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 it looked like the beaches had disappeared. I mean, it was that thick with marine yeah life. yeah i mean it literally carpeted the beach so, so i think probably like you say the uh the worst one affected was the one on, um it's only about an hour from here um on the yorkshire coast and bizarrely i'd actually been fishing there the week before and it was all perfectly normal if you know a little bit cold um <laughs> but i didn't see the odd seashell uh washed up on the beach but you know you went back there the next week um, and it was just incredible. Most of it was dead, but there were a lot of lobsters still alive. Huh. And um, uh, the Bridlington, which is the t- nearest town on that coast, is, is actually the biggest lobster fishery in Europe. So there were a lot of very worried lobster fishermen, as you might imagine. And they actually came out in their droves to rescue the lobsters, huh. um, which... <laughs> Which sounds pretty bizarre, and it, and it was. Uh, so, you know, these guys were out there. The weather was obviously horrendous. It was freezing cold, um, sort of sleeting at that stage. Uh, but they, the way they rescued them as well was to fill up the backs of utes with them. So I think I saw pictures of like three or four ute loads of lobsters. What, full to the brink? Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like absolutely full to the brim. Uh, so, like I say, I mean, I the numbers, you know, definitely tens of thousands, I would imagine. And, and so these lobster um, fishermen, were they then putting them on boats and taking them out offshore and dropping them over the side so that they would, you know, essentially, I guess they were all undersized and they were all, you know, the next generation of, of fish? Yeah, that's right. So most of them were undersized, which I guess is partly to be expected because they're going to be the most sort of vulnerable um, what they did, they have big saltwater holding tanks um, at the actual port there because this is a product that's uh, shipped live to Europe mostly. So they actually were able to take the lobsters off the beach, put them into these holding tanks for a couple of days, and then they took them out in their boats once the weather had calmed down a little bit and released them sort of three or four miles offshore. Wow. Um, as a biologist, I would have loved to have tagged them and recorded everything but it was also mental um uh, that you know it was just a question of getting these things back into the ocean i was going to ask you about that bryce that was something that we um noticed and lived um going through uh post-grad life as phd students that often nature provides you with all sorts of opportunities that you don't see coming is that was that one of the consequences of the beast from the east, that all of a sudden there were all these sampling opportunities or was everyone just sort of caught off guard and, and not able to capitalise on that? I mean, yes and no. Like, so, uh, you know, we were doing our best and um, fortunately it's a fairly well-studied bit of coastline because there's these important fisheries. I happen to have a couple of intertidal sites there that I've been monitoring for the last five years, so... You know, it'd be really interesting to go back to those. But a lot of it was just on such a scale we couldn't record it. So pe- yeah, people wow. were, um, some guys from Hull University were using drones to survey 
you know, literally just sort of uh, area coverage of dead marine creatures. <laughs> you know, that's a new measure, isn't it? Mm. Um, but, yeah, uh, but strangely what it did do, because as you can imagine, it got a huge amount of media coverage, mm. was it really raised awareness of, like, how much diversity there is in UK seas, um, which might... You know, I guess it's a bit different over here compared to Australia because not too many people go actually in the sea here. <laughs> and if they do, like, visibility is not that great. Obviously, there is some good diving and, you know, there's some great spots. But the average person never sees the sort of stuff that people in Australia might see. And and they just – there's a perception that, you know, the UK seas are pretty sort of dull and lifeless. But actually – all this life came out of the ocean and uh, and it actually did a great job of raising awareness. Um, I think, uh, you know, a lot of the conservation agencies were out on the beaches trying to save this stuff. Um, a friend of mine from the Yorkshire Wildlife Trust was just basically run off her feet for like a, a week, I think. I mean, she was even appearing, I saw in, in your news yes. um, from yeah. her yes. pictures yeah. on Facebook. So, you know, it was actually, in a bizarre way, kind of good for marine conservation. I mean, we don't know what the long-term effects will be, but, um, yeah, it's funny, like you say, how nature, you know, does its own thing, doesn't it? Mm. It's a really interesting segue into one of the other items we wanted to talk about, which was the with the pending Brexit, you know, the exit of the UK from the right. EU. Right, yes, yes. Um, and you've been involved in the kind of fisheries negotiations and, and, and what are, or at least the scientific input into the fisheries negotiations. And I, I wonder if events like that actually then suddenly raise the profile of these kinds of discussions as well. And what is the latest from Brexit fisheries? Yeah, so uh, so it's all been happening here in, in Brexit and fisheries land. Um, well, it is if you're a bit sad like me and that's the sort of stuff you work on. But... Um, you know, funnily enough, obviously Brexit is a big deal for us here in the UK, but even though the fishing industry is worth something like, uh, I think it's 0.05 of a percent of GDP, it's had a really high profile during during the vote for Brexit and then subsequently. Um, and, you know, one of the big messages that that the uh, the key Brexiteers like Nigel Farage, lovely chap, and um, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove was kept pushing was you know we're going to take back control of our seas, and um, is that, there were a few of uh, is, is of that, us like that, scientists like myself and a couple of other colleagues who were going, yeah, I don't think Europe's going to be too keen on that. You know, you can't just kick them all out like they've been fishing there for centuries, if not longer. Um, and, the, you know, we're so close to mainland Europe here. There's seven different countries around the North Sea, for example, and the fish often spawn in one country's waters, grow up in another, then move mm. somewhere else to feed. Um, you know, the fish stocks are very shared. Yeah. So the idea yeah. that you could... Um, you know, just suddenly isolate the UK was ridiculous, to be honest. Fish don't need passports, uh, guys. Sorry, the other side of it that I kind of just mentioned was like with the lobsters all going to Europe. Um, the UK exports about 70, 75% of all of its seafood huh. to Europe. So we really didn't want to upset them too much <laughs> um, because that's the main market. Yeah, yeah. So, so again, you know, we were saying before the vote even happened, guys, it's not going to be this simple. You're not going to be able to just, you know, suddenly claim everything for yourself because it's not really yours. And anyway, you know, you'll you'll destroy your main market. Um, oh, sorry, Bryce. So is, sorry, Rex here. Uh, Bryce, I was just wondering how reciprocal agreements would go then if if inter international fishermen aren't allowed to fish in. In the UK waters, uh, the UK fishermen allowed to fish in international waters. Then, yeah. So this is so up until now, because we've been part of Europe uh, through what's called the Common Fisheries Policy, all European boats are allowed to 
fish yeah. in each other's waters up to within 12 miles. There's various exceptions, like it's ridiculously complicated, but yeah, that's the basic can, story. Can you tell us, sorry, I know it's a side thing, but what is an example of those little exceptions just because it gives a colour and movement to the, <laughs> the issue? Oh, so, so within the sort of um, 6 to 12 mile limit, um, some boats are allowed to fish there because of sort of ancient historical practices. So, right. you know, France is allowed to come in and fish quite close inshore, so off the south coast of the UK. And, and, and the UK has some reciprocal arrangements, but they don't seem to do very well out of them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you can imagine, you know, people have been doing this, as I said, for yeah. <laughs> probably close to a thousand years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, these are not arrangements that you can just tear up easily. So, so where's it going? Well, yeah, so so what happened was, as, you know, it's very hard for me not to go to everyone, I told you so, but <laughs> hey, I'm among friends. Just do um, it, Bryce, this is your big opportunity. <laughs> well, hang on, when you've noticed yeah, well, you've been... You so, so basically the European uh, Commission turned around and said, unless you maintain... Uh, current arrangements that is current quota shares and current access of European boats into UK then we won't trade with you anymore or we'll slap massive tariffs on your wow. seafood so it's non-competitive. Which would destroy the fishing industry in the UK. It would destroy the fishing yeah. industry and almost worst of all it would destroy the the small inshore operators who yeah, yeah. already have a pretty hard deal but yeah. these are the ones who, who catch, like, crabs and lobsters and scallops, which are the – almost all of those go to Europe, like 80 90% of those. Um, and they're the sort of more environmentally friendly, more connected to the local community-type operators that we should be trying to protect. Yeah, not the big factory ships. This is like the, this is exactly. like the local – the big yeah. factory yeah. trawl is probably yeah. going to be okay. But yeah. um, these little guys, you know, I mean, they – I actually, so I was in, uh, I made another appearance in Parliament towards the end of the last year to discuss this with two fishing industry representatives. And I said, I said, this would be a disaster, wouldn't it, um, if this happened? And they they actually said yes yeah, well. in front of Parliament, which was quite something. Uh, and then it was played back to them on, on Radio 4 the next day. So that was kind of satisfying. <laughs> Anyway, to cut to the chase, we have this deal here where um, because Brexit is so complicated, they've had to set up a transition period. So it was meant to take two years, but we were never going to get anywhere near sorting it then. And this is for everything. Yep. So Brexit was meant to happen July, uh, sorry, March 2019. So they said, no, we need until 2020. And so the fishing industry are all going, uh, but we don't want to, you know, we want our control now. We want our quotas now, and we want our, we want to restrict the other boats now. We should be exempt from the transition deal. And even right up to, like, a couple of weeks ago, the politicians were saying, okay, we'll see what we can do. And then basically they came out and said, no, sorry, we're going to have to do everything that Europe says but actually, because it's a transition, we'll be, we'll be controlled by the common fisheries policy, by Europe, but we won't have any say about it. Oh. So normally, the UK was able to influence the regulations, the quota setting, etc. So for the next, like, well, nearly two years from next year, they'll be controlled by it, but have no say. So they're actually worse off. How interesting! Um, uh, the thing that the thing about this story that I find most interesting is it is given your involvement and the involvement of other um, experts in Parliament and in House of Lords and parliamentary committees, they seem to be listening to the science. There seems to be some interest in the science um, influencing the outcome here. Yeah, it, it, I think it is coming through. Um, I was particularly impressed with the House of Lords when we went there. You know. I, I guess you have a certain view of politicians, don't you? But some of them are actually quite clever and sensible. Oh, yeah. All of them. No, in my experience, <laughs> that is the case. I've met, a few, 
spot on themselves. <laughs> hey, hey, Bryce, we've got to wrap up. We could chat all day, but we're going to have to wrap up. No gonna, can we very quickly, can you give us 30 seconds on the Blue Planet effect? So the Blue Planet is two, is just starting, I think, or about to start here. You guys have had it in the UK. Aside from the fact that we all would be, will be wowed by the latest um, um, Edinburgh kind of, you know, work, what happened that you didn't predict after the Blue Planet was shown, was shown in the UK? Right. So it was the most popular TV show in the UK last year, particularly the last episode, which you probably haven't had. No, don't. Edinburgh, don't. <laughs> basically, the whole thing is about the effects we're having on the oceans and particularly climate change and plastic pollution. And everyone was just like, you know, uh, caught up in this, including the politicians. Theresa May made announcements, and when she went to China a few weeks ago, she gave the Chinese president a box set of Blue Planet 2 to raise oh, awareness wow. about plastic pollution. Turns wow. out Blue Planet 2 was also watched by 100 million people in China, so uh, the president probably had seen some of it already, but hey, and it so, was a nice gesture. And so it's... Um, but it's also, it had an impact. Yeah, but also basically a whole swathe of things have happened. Um, the UK government has extended its ban on plastic bags and shops or, or a charge, sorry, I should say, if you, if you use them. It's bringing in a bottle recycling scheme. Lots of our big supermarkets are suddenly going, we're going to go plastic free as much as we can within the next few years. Mm. Bags on straws. All this stuff, and it's all happened since Blue Planet 2. It's just remarkable. Wow. So Bron's been looking up. When's it going to play? It's actually it's on Channel 9. Yep. So you can uh, catch up on the episodes via missed. there yeah, that yep. you've missed. Yep. And it, I, I think it's partway through the series. So yes. we'll wait and see. We haven't had so, this. Definitely. It's awesome. Check it out. But, hey. yeah, uh, be ready for a powerful message at the end. Bryce Stewart, thank you very much for staying online, staying up so late in um, in York and the UK, and uh, we'll get you back in, uh, in a regular catch-up period about what's going on in the UK. Sounds great. A pleasure. Good to talk to you guys. Great. See ya. Bye. Bye, Bryce. Bye. Indeed, you own Radio Marinara on 3RRR. It is 21 minutes to the hour of 10 o'clock, and uh, radio, our Prime Minister is on people, so get into it. Now, Pete, uh, Rex... Yeah. Rex, tell us, Rex Hunter. Rex Hunter, <laughs> tell in us the flesh about the Batavia. Well, the Batavia was um, one of the uh, Dutch VOC ships that we used to sail out from um, Holland all the way out to uh, what's modern day Jakarta, which was Batavia back in the 1500s. Um, happened to slam in the side of uh, the Bros <laughs> Bros Islands on oh, the what? off the west coast of uh, Western Australia and. Uh, there followed one of the, the sort of worst worst massacres and sort of oh, it's a very very messy uh, sort of uh, all power tends to corrupt absolute power corrupts absolutely when the uh, mm. second in charge took over and then started massacring people so ever since then so this was 1629 um, and eventually they 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 got off the captain took off to um, up to Batavia in the, in the in the small boat and didn't leave anybody capable in charge um, eventually. After a couple of months, they made their way back and found a, a real shambles with two two camps. Uh, one sort of led by I think Webby Hayes. He was a soldier. He was defending a small small island against the uh, the more or less the mutineers. And they they went on to murder. I think yeah, well over a hundred odd people. It's basically people, like people who didn't disagree, people who disagreed with yeah. their way of thinking. Yeah. And so. Um, I think since it was found in the early 1960s, they've started doing a lot of archaeology and then on the island itself they've done a number of excavations and keep on finding more bones. And uh, and these latest bones, the five bodies yeah. that have been found, do not look like they were involved in sword fight. Like, they did not no. look like they were murdered. There was no, yeah, there was yeah. no sort of crushed skulls or, you know, yeah. damaged bones. It was just natural causes that they think... So, is there the thought that maybe they were thrown overboard, so they died on a ship, and then? Well, they could, yeah, yeah they could have been, yeah, could have been killed in the buried ship, buried at sea, buried. Well, they could have been well, killed on the wreck, yep. or whatever, and um, just buried, or 
natural causes. Now, the Fighting Sullivans. The Fighting Sullivans. So, so I missed, you know, I was born in the late 60s. So, you know, and Bron and I kind of probably, do you know who the Fighting Sullivans are? No, I know who the Sullivans were, but I don't know who the Fighting, well, they were technically the Fighting they Sullivans. They all went off to the Second World War. I think that's a 70s, 80s thing. Yeah, yes. I think we're talking about a 60s thing here. Well, a, a US, um, Irish, American family, uh, mm. brother, five, uh, five brothers, and they all wanted to be together. In the Navy, and they all wanted to be on the one ship together, unfortunately. Um, and they were on the ship called the uh, USS Junee, and that was torpedoed um, off Solomon Island in the Battle of Guadalcanal mm-hmm. in 1942. Uh, and none of the brothers survived, and along with 680 Christ. odd other, other his shipmates, went to the bottom. And so, uh, in the end, uh, I think it was actually became official that. Families had to be separated. Yeah. They couldn't. You couldn't have brothers and all that working t- on board one ship together because there's such a catastrophe and yeah. great propaganda for the US as well, mind you. It made great propaganda, and then there was the movie that came out. I think it was the Fighting Sullivans, right? And so the ship, the Junee, yeah. What's the latest on that? Well, it's found by Paul Allen with his crew, so yeah. he's he must be just pouring mega millions. Into um, and that was only recently. It was only uh, March, yeah, mid 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 late March. They, um, I mean, this guy's got money; he can afford to send their <laughs> automated vehicle, your AUV, underwater just to collect all the data, and they bring it back and then they analyse it. And oh, there's a, there's a wreck, so we'll just send down an ROV to check it out. And that's in, you know, well, well over four thousand metres of water, so. It's so did they know where it was? But of course, because it was in over four thousand meters, they couldn't get to it. Or and it's only because of modern technology we can. Or was it actually kind of? They knew roughly, but they didn't know. They know uh, they'd have a rough area oh. where because I mean, there's all there's always reports into in- incidents, and there's yeah. You know, if you go through the archives, you can find. But it wasn't. They never knew precisely until they sent. No, they didn't stuff. have the yeah. X actually X on the spot. I yeah. mean, I mean, they can be up to. You know, ten nautical miles out yeah. in some of their um, positions because in in the heat of war, you know, somebody's oh, yeah. describing down where they think they are, and they mightn't mightn't be there at all. It sounds very similar to the Titanic discovery in terms of the lead up to that. Yeah, that was a, that was a huge huge job. That was Ballard and um, oh, and the French. Don't don't forget the French Navy as well. Yes. No, don't but in terms of the depth, the French Navy. in terms of the depth of the water, oh, and, it's, and it's, it's huge huge deeper. That's probably even Couple. deeper, that one, isn't it? Yeah. Is it? I think it's 20,000 feet or something. Right. Something yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, no, I'm trying to work out what that is in kilometres. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking of my it's National six, Geographic I article about, I read. It's about six kilometres, I think, isn't it? I think it, it is. Yeah, between yeah. six yeah, and seven. Yeah, let's go with that. I'm with Bron. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty deep anyway, but, yeah. But in the old days, if you if you had a side scan sonar, you needed three times the depth yeah. of water to get to somewhere near where you can tow. So... You've got you know twelve kilometres a cable or more on the back of your boat on a great big spiel, yeah, yeah. towing your side scan sonar, and then if you happen to come past the side of a mountain or something rather, you mightn't have time to heave Wheel that, it in. Heave yeah. that thing up so you miss the side of the mountain. And as Mer- uh, David Moon said, he said there's two types of sonar operators: those that have lost side scan sonars and those that are about to lose side scans. <laughs> <laughs> I think you were saying those who lied about not having them. <laughs> that is sensational, Rex. Interesting. So, um, also, I was just going to, if we've got time, we've got time. I reckon we've got about one minute because we've got Alison and Phil waiting well, to I'll, come in. I'll hold this over. For the, no, that's all right. Well, um, you know, precursor to the internet, telephone, well, that was <laughs> the, the transatlantic cable. So, um, oh, next time I mean, I'll talk more about it. But Ooh. what they, communications are so important, even... Back in the 1850s, it was very important. Well, you forget the latest news of what stocks are going up and down. That was worth an awful, awful lot of money. So eventually, uh, entrepreneur, US entrepreneur, raised enough capital to uh, run a cable through um, from Ireland to uh, Newfoundland and then down through uh, eventually to New York. But uh, it's a really complicated story and I'll... I'll Carry on next week. Yeah. Oh, a worth, teaser. Worth hearing. Let's leave that one for now. Nice. Tenacity.
Indeed. Now, next weekend, the Slow Food Melbourne, sorry, Slow Food Melbourne presents the inaugural Slow Fish Festival in Spotswood. It's a time to take stock of many threats faced by our oceans and the bays and those who rely on them for food or their livelihood. The Slow Fish Festival will share insights into what's needed to ensure our seafood and aquaculture can survive now and the future while celebrating and savouring the catch on our very own doorstep. To tell us all about it right now, we welcome festival coordinator Alison Peake and presenter and third generation Fisher Phil McAdam. Good morning to you both. Thanks for coming in. Morning. Pleasure to be here. Morning. Been great to uh, finally get you both in to talk about this. Alison, I thought we might start with Slow Food Melbourne. Let's start with that. What is Slow Food Melbourne? Slow Food, yeah. We often have to explain with nothing to do with slow fishing or slow fish or slow cooking or we're not a casserole club. Um, (laughs) No, it's literally in its simplest form, anti-fast food, I suppose would be the easiest way. Um, Was a bunch of left-wing journalists started the movement in Italy in protest at the opening of the first McDonald's Mm. and they protested by sitting on the Spanish steps and eating pasta. This is super cool. So this is slow food. It is not fast food, and and I love this. So and as you mentioned, it's part of a global. It's it started in Italy, but it is now global organisation, isn't it's it? It's huge. Yes. Now we've now got eighty thousand members globally, uh, and it's grown a lot. And it's it's taken on the whole all the issues around food and food security, food um, sovereignty, uh, and sustainability. And we're also interested in, you know, food traditions and maintaining food traditions. And that's the fishing is part of that too. Mm. How many countries are involved, do you know? Uh, over, mm, over 80, yeah. over, no, 160 or something like that. Look, oh, we're wow. huge. It's, it's everywhere. <laughs> and it's something that's growing because people obviously feel so passionate about it. And is it a resistance type organisation, do you think, resisting this growing trend for fast food? Very much so, mm. very much so. Yeah, it was from the, it was very much from the... Uh, Communist Party in Italy, all the very left-wing journalists initially, um, but it's now really speaks to a lot of people in a lot of third-world countries as well. Um, we have things like the Ark of Taste, which is trying to maintain the culture of food and um, and, and save dying tastes and di- dying food cultures. Can we talk about that a little bit in terms of dying tastes? Can you give us some examples of that? Look, that can be everything from a particular coffee bean that's got a special taste. It might be rare breed meats, um, animals that are no longer being bred commercially but that may have um, better flavours, which is something that we have in Australia as well. Um, But also it could be a a particular tuber crop in South America. It can be a recipe. It can be anything that's something that, as we've got, much more commercialisation of food and, you know, blame the supermarket duopolies a lot for that, for making things as cheap and simple as possible. But a lot of the time that's at the cost of that is the taste, the flavour and the cultures. You're right. And is that partly because the, you need a standard product, it's all standardised, it's kind of blandified? Absolutely. And it's all about, for instance, tomatoes would be a classic example. You want a tomato, it's nothing to do with taste, it's all about how long you can Shelf keep life. it. It's shelf yeah. life. It's that it's got to be tough so that you can transport it. It's got to be open apples again or tomatoes, things that can be kept in cold store for six months and then gas ripened. Nothing to do with flavour, all to do with how you can make the most money out of them at, on the supermarket shelves. Yeah, I was going to mention apples just because I'm aware that there has been a growing uh, interest in heritage, what's called heritage apples. And is there a similar one with tomatoes? And we will move on to fish. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's the Ark of Taste, is, that's exactly what it's about. It's, you know, we'd look, liken it to Noah's Ark um, and loading those products onto the Ark to be saved. Yeah, right. Um, now, you've just come back from an international meeting of slow, I'm going to call you slow foodies. Slow foodies, that's us. Yeah. What was that all about? Um, are there current trends and themes that are each time you meet that, that are really emerging? Uh, Slow Food has a series of regular festivals um, which are held on a two-year cycle. Slow Fish and Slow Cheese happen every two years in Italy and we also have um, one called Salona Gusto and Terra Madre, which is a meeting of, lo- of uh, gro- global food communities. Um, I went to Slow Fish last year with Phil's daughter, Kat, who fishes with him, um, taking her there to represent the problems that we're having here locally on the global stage. Uh, and also for her to to meet other people and realise that a lot of the problems we're having here uh, are not just Australian problems. You know, they're happening everywhere. Um, Phil, 
perfect uh, opportunity to introduce you and to yep. talk you, tell your story. You're th- we mentioned you're a third-generation fisherman. Can you tell us a bit about your family's history and heritage with fishing in Port Phillip Bay? Well, I started uh, fishing with my father, which he was a yeah, um, career fisherman. And, um, yeah, just continued on from there, running my own business um, from the age of 13. That's all I've done since I left school. And now my daughter's working on the... Well, my two daughters are working on the boat. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a family business. Uh, and is there a particular fish that you pre- uh, Predominantly sardines okay. we catch. Um, uh, white bait and sardines are our main, main catch. And um, half, probably half of them go for eating, the other half go for bait. And... That's where we got in, uh, involved in slow food uh, to promote, you know, the fresh local product, um, which it's, you yeah, know, there's, there's not many fishermen left now in the bay catching the fresh local product, you know. Yeah, so if you go to the market and you see um, sardines that yep. are locally caught, it's possible that they've come from, from you. Well, I'm the only one left in Port Phillip Bay okay. catching them. <laughs> yep, so it will be you. So leading on to the next question, and I know this is something that you're wanting to really focus on next weekend at the Slowfish Festival. What kind of changes have you seen over the decades, Phil? What have, you, have you noticed improvements as well as... Um... There's no improvements in commercial fishing. Right. Um, it's, it's a downward spiral. <clears throat> Two years ago, we had 43 fishermen in Port Phillip Bay. Now we're down to nine. And um, and it's earmarked for closing in 2022 to all commercial netting. But eight longline licences will remain after then, which will be just predominantly a snapper fishery then. Right. There'll be no sardines, no King George whiting. Yeah. And so what sort of impact is that likely to have? Well, in the, in the last two years, it's already had a massive impact. You know, the, the price of King George whiting... Uh, the average price two years ago was $20 a kilo. Now it's up around $40 a kilo. Um, everyone knows the price of flathead. You know, they go in, in the supermarket and it's 50 and $60 a kilo for flathead. And it's just compounding all the time. And I remember when I was a kid that flathead was kind of the fish that you would get if you couldn't afford yeah, Other not fish. anymore. No, that's right. <laughs> so, what do you reckon? Is the are there just not the fish? Is that oh, what's tons, driving it? Tons of fish out there. What's what's driving it? Tons from of your fish out there. We, the second half of last year, because now we're, we're on a catch cap, um, yeah, and that was part of the uh, closure, the the promised closure by the Andrews government. Um, the second half of the year, we had to basically do a go slow, you know, to fish to out under, the year to get under the cap. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we're only fishing two days a week. And so the change is has been the, has been increased regulation as opposed to increased uh, decreased fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the closure was nothing about sustainability. Um, everyone admitted, even the recreational groups admitted, you know, the fishery is sustainable. Um, but it was all about this thing of uh, enhancing the opportunities of the recreational angler. Let's just uh, talk uh, about next weekend and what's coming up with the Slow Fish Festival, because this is the first one that will be held in Melbourne, Alison. It is the first one. Slow Fish um, happens in Geneva and Italy every two years as an international festival. Uh, this is the first time there's been one in Australia. Uh, and the main thing we want to focus on is, you know, what Phil's talking about there. We want the consumers to understand what they're losing. They're losing the the right to buy local seafood, and that's very much what Slow Food wants to promote, that the best food is always fresh and local. And that's also about business and culture and history. Um, You know, you're you're losing all your history as well and fishing culture. And it's not just about purchasing fish, isn't it? Because you mentioned bait, Phil. Yeah. So yeah. you were saying that half of what you catch actually is bait. It's for the recreational. That supplies that the recreational. Us down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, there's a point, uh, one key point too is you know, that resource of Port Phillip Bay belongs to the people of Victoria, not 5% of the population that drops a line in it. And that, that's what it's getting locked away for. Yep. You know, 5 or 10% of the population that goes out and drops a line. So you're one of the featured speakers at next weekend's festival. Yep. And there's a series of educative talks and we'll mention your other speakers in a sec. What can people expect to hear when they come to see you? Basically what they're hearing now. Yeah, just right. the history, what we do. Uh, we've got a short presentation that'll be on a screen. And basically I'm just there to answer people's questions yep and your daughter will be there as well yep Yep. 
Um, let's Hopefully, go. if she hasn't given birth. She's yeah, uh, she's very close. She's <laughs> <my hour. laughs> Three weeks of giving birth and uh, she got off the boat a week ago. <laughs> well, that might be another feature of next weekend's festival. Um, let's go through the rest of the lineup. Um, Kristen Abernethy is one of the another featured speaker. Yep. What will she be covering? Uh, Kirsten... Sorry, uh, Kirsten. Kirsten specialises in... Um, the whole notion of sustainable seafood. Um, she's actually in business with her partner who's an abalone fisherman. Um, so she's very much across all the issues to do with sustainability and uh, the industry. And she's just recently won um, quite a significant award for her work in the rural sector, is that right? She has. She was a rural woman, woman of the year. Um, and she's doing a lot of work with women in fishing too. So Barbara Constance from the Melbourne Seafood Centre will also be presenting. Um, she was to be doing something on women in fishing. She's decided she's doing a filleting demonstration. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, these things change. Yep. Um, but, yeah, there is quite an emphasis there. There's a lot of women involved in the fishing industry. Um, they don't necessarily get the same... Um, notice that the men get you know men are a bit more obvious I suppose because they're out there doing the fishing but the industry does involve a lot of women. And it's been a big drive and a big push to increase women participation in fishing too I've noticed over the years. It has yeah yeah, Kirsten and and Barbara are certainly in the forefront of that Um, And? All right. Yep. Okay. Yep. Conscious of the time, a couple of things I just <laughs> did want to cover. Just some other things as part of the um, the festival, the seafood market. Now, your press release mentions sea urchin and abalone. Can people try these? Unfortunately, the sex life of sea urchins has got in the way, <laughs> and they've spawned too <laughs> early for us. So uh, we might. I think next year we might have to go a little bit earlier with the festival um, because we found uh, some of the scallops and sea urchins <laughs> and a few of the things we would have liked to have there. Um, their um, life cycle didn't quite fit with our calendar. Yeah. Uh, nature stops. We will have sardines, though. Yeah, right. Oh, good. (laughs) Now, cooking demonstrations, you've got um, the fabulous Frank Kimura from Movita, um, Matt Wilkinson from Pope Joan, I saw. Yep, excellent. And some activities for the kids? Yes, we'll have some fishy-style activities for the kids as well. Excellent. So, details, Slow Fish Festival, it's next Sunday, April 15, uh, from 10 till 4. We'll give this a big plug next week and put the details on our Facebook page. Um, Already up there. And the venue? Uh, Spotswood Kingsville RSL. Excellent. So that's 16 Mary Street, Spotswood. It's a gold coin entry uh, and uh, a nominal fee for select cooking demonstrations and talks. You can book to those via the website. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll organise a time to get you back in the near future, I think, to talk about this issue some more because it's a really important one. Absolutely. Probably not next Sunday, though. No, not (laughs) next You'll be a bit busy. Excellent. Thanks to our guests. I know. Thanks to Bryce Stewart, Dr Bryce Stewart from the University of York in the UK. Thank you, Rex. Rex. And thanks, uh, Kent. He's currently... um, he will be Madly shortly. Yes, editing and putting this show up as a podcast. On our program next week, Dr Beach is going to be in. We've also got Cade Mills coming in with Bob Byrne talking about the sea slug census, which is coming up. Paul Carnell from Deakin Uni is going to be talking about blue carbon research and some collaborative work with Melbourne Uni on natural coastal protection and a sea urchin cull. Interesting. And also um, Jeff Maynard is going to be in as well. Big show next Big week. Big show. See ya. Have a great Sunday. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R Sponsors. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.